And we're now going to start the first of our series in the book of Acts. This is going to be an exercise in self-control unheard of for me before. We're doing a 28-chapter book in just 10 sermons, and that's not even a promise. That's just an aim. I give myself full liberty to extend that and blow it into term four if we want. But it is Acts of the Apostles or Acts of the Holy Spirit, depending which commentary you read. It is the uh, very unique uh, first three decades of church history that is accurate and inspired. We don't need to read this church history and wonder what what angle they're coming from, wondering if they got it correct. This is spirit-inspired church history. This is amazingly uh, an amazing blessing to be able to have this in our biblical canon. It's called Acts. Uh, Back in the first century and sort of the centuries around it, that was a word. The the Greek word for Acts there is is the word that they would use as they are telling the stories and the accounts and the amazing feats done by great men who are either war heroes or gladiators or kings or emperors. They would write down their stories and title it Acts of so-and-so. And what we have in this book is Acts of the Apostles, the heroic feats the, 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 the glorious lives lived and deaths died of the apostles by the hand of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. That's what we're reading. We're reading the feats, the hero tales of the early church, these men that we are told in Hebrews to follow after. This is, Acts is a, is a narrative book, okay? It's historical. It's going to tell us stories and historical accounts, and then they did this, and this king did that, and these people went here. It's all narrative. But it's doing through narrative what the book of Hebrews does through theological and biblical exposition. If you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, it, it's, a, it's a book that is written. We don't certainly know the author. I'm with, I just side with Spurgeon on these things. It was Paul. And uh, it's a, a book about showing that all the good that the Old Testament was, it was all just foreshadowing Jesus, who is God, not an angel. You read Hebrews 1, he explicitly explains that God in flesh was Jesus. He was not an angel. But, let's keep going, uh, the main point that Hebrews is making is the transition from Old Covenant, Old Testament, to New Covenant and New Testament. How we used to have priests, now we have Jesus. We used to have a kingdom that was geopolitical, now we have the church that is all nations. It used to be the temple we would go to to worship. Now we have the spiritual temple, the church. We used to have Mount Sinai that we go to. Here the law read through Moses. Now we have Zion that we go to, where we hear the grace coming through Jesus. So what Hebrews does theologically and expositionally from Old Testament text, the book of Acts does through story narrative. So This is one of the things I want you to keep an eye out as we go through these next 10 sermons and take apart the the top 10 big sermons from the book of Acts. And so this series is called The Best Sermons in History, not referring to mine, but referring to the apostles, inspired, perfect sermons. I want you to keep an eye out for these questions. We're going to seek to answer them every week. Number one, how does this sermon develop the narrative of salvation? So from creation to atonement, to consummation and glorification at the end, how does this sermon sort of develop and push us into an understanding of the developing of that narrative? Secondly, how does this sermon help transition us from an Old Covenant, Old Testament mindset to a New Covenant, New Testament mindset? Then we will ask, how does this sermon preach Christ? Of course. 
And then fourthly, we'll ask, what modern-day applications can we learn as we are a church on mission, as the early church was, and as we are individuals with a gospel to proclaim as the early Christians were? If you go into the book of Acts, we've said it before here, and we'll say it again, 25% of of all of the verses in Acts are a portion of some kind of speech, which is defending the Christian faith, or out in the open air preaching the Christian faith. 25% of this book is made up of speeches because as we look at the acts of the apostles done by Jesus through his Holy Spirit, the speeches are acts. We're not one of those churches that says there's sermons and there's theology and there's Sunday morning. And then there's the practical side of the Christian life, the stuff you actually do that actually matters, right? Now, friends, we believe wholeheartedly, as the book of Acts shows us, that the speaking of the gospel is not just one among many other acts of Christians. It is the primary act of every Christian throughout all time is the bold speaking and proclaiming of Jesus. That is the primary instrument of kingdom building, church planting, soul saving that Jesus does by his spirit through us in this world. So that's why we're looking at the sermons. We're looking at the greatest of the acts, not the resurrections, not the raisings, the healings, the the tissues that heal people, just not our focus. Because it wasn't the apostles' focus. The apostles and Luke, as he wrote their story, focused on preaching Jesus. Can you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8? We will be going to chapter 2 to preach, but this is still just intro. In chapter 1, verse 1 and 1, verse 8, we see this dynamic. Luke is writing the the book of Acts, the same guy that wrote the Gospel of Luke. There were actually originally two volumes, Luke-Acts. They were written by the one man giving a narrative account of Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry from heaven. That's Acts. So he writes to his uh, rich friend who funded his ministry. He says in verse 1, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do. And teach. Luke, that gospel story, is all that Jesus began to do and teach. But Acts is all that Jesus continued to do and teach, but now in the church age, through the apostles and the church. Jesus is in heaven, the Spirit is on earth, working through us. We are, and what we do and say is what Jesus continues to do and to teach. So, Verse 8 will say, as Jesus' summary of the whole of the book of Acts, Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Mark down these these four uh, uh, points on the map. In Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Those four points, uh, geographical locations mark out for us the, the, the flow of the book of Acts, where the apostles start preaching in Jerusalem, and then they spread to Judea and to Samaria, and then through the persecution and the missionary acts of Paul, they are spread throughout all of the ends of the earth. That's Jesus prophesying, telling them, here is your commission. Once you receive power, go and spread it. And that's what we see happen in the book of Acts. So can you turn now to Acts chapter 2 and to verse 14? This, of course, is a well-misunderstood text. Um, All of them are. I say that every Sunday. It's just always twisted. 
Well, we try to set some things straight, but we're going to read from verse 14 through to 41. I know it's a lot. It'll take only about three and a half minutes. Um, and the sermon, of course, that day was much longer. Don't tap me on the shoulder afterwards and say, see, Peter preached for three and a half minutes. No. <clears throat> Let's go. Verse 14, chapter 2. Hear now the word of the living God. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice. There you go. Biblical yelling. Thank you. Standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he starts explaining his Old Testament quote. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. Every Old Testament text is explained through Jesus of Nazareth, friends. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, another Old Testament quote, he says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make, known, you will make me full of gladness with your Presence. Again, to explain the Old Testament text, Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. <coughs> Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn to him with an oath that he would set, his, set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So let all the house of Israel therefore know 
for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter, and the, uh, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, not just a three and a half minute sermon, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word and were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. May God bless the reading of this amazing sermon to us this morning. We're going to start back in verse 14, where Peter begins to explain Pentecost. We're going to see him explain Pentecost and preach Jesus Christ of Nazareth. When he, when he stands up to give this amazing sermon that you hear and you saw comes with so much energy that the people are cut to the heart and 3,000 of them are saved. When he stands up to start preaching, it's because God has just done something by the Holy Spirit that we know as Pentecost. What had happened was, and those who know your, your history will, will know what Acts 2 tells us, that in the first 13 verses, the Christians who had followed Jesus until his ascension, they had gathered, they were praying like Jesus told them to, and while they were praying, on the appointed day of the Old Testament feast of Pentecost, they didn't bring it about by their praying, they were readied by their praying, but God had a time to send the Spirit. And God sent the Spirit to them on that day of Pentecost, which was symbolic of of celebrating uh, 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 to God and worshipping God for his bringing in of of some of the harvest that was part of the worship. We're not going to go into all of that. But what had happened is that as the Spirit came down, he brought signs and wonders among the people. So it it was one a uh, heck of a prayer meeting. People were there, and what came down on top of them were, were, were little tongues of fire. Fire floating on each of their heads is what I, I think it would have looked like. And, and what happened around them was this torrent of noise, this, this pouring in and tearing through of what they would, would call the, a sound like a waterfall or a sound like cascading waters or a sound like a thunderstorm. This wind just tore through the town and, and came to that upper room where they were, but it wasn't real wind because, well, we know because the fire didn't go out. That's my proof. But also because nothing was moved around. It was, it was a noise like thunder, like wind, came uh, and, 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 and arrived at them while the fire came onto their heads. And then, in an instant, each of them began extolling and praising God in languages they had never learned. Most of them were unlearned Galileans, right? They're from towns like us, not graduating with PhDs in linguistics. They were fishermen and farmer boys, and they were speaking the the vast languages from all over the Roman Empire. And all of these Jews from all over the Roman Empire who had come to Jerusalem for that 
holiday, heard them preaching and were saying, why are they able to speak our languages in our tones, in our dialects? This is a miracle. And others heard and said that what they were hearing was just drunk men babbling. They didn't really believe that. That was just a, just a taunt, just a mock to throw out there. But that is what they said. And so that is why Peter stands up in verse 14 to begin explaining it. And he says in verse 15, they're not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. Their days were measured from sort of sunrise onwards. It'd be about 9 a.m. There's nowhere in Jerusalem you can get grog at 9 a.m. And even the drunk people who, who would be drunk at 9 a.m. are just still drunk from the night before and aren't up at 9 a.m. in church singing praises to the Lord. Little clue. So Peter says, that's ridiculous. You know it. That's not what you're seeing. But what we want to see before we start going into how he explains all of this through Joel's prophecy is the similarities between the Mount Sinai experience of Israel in the desert and this Mount Zion experience of the Spirit coming in Pentecost. As Israel was drawn out of Egypt and saved by the Red Sea and saved by the blood of the Lamb that all points to Jesus, if we read our New Testament, they came into the desert and came to Mount Sinai, the, the place where they would receive the law written on tablets where God would speak to them and cleanse them as a nation for himself. And that day, when they, when they first drew into Sinai, what we read happen in the Exodus account is fire burning at the top of the mountain and thunderous noise and wind at the top of the mountain and noises like trumpets blasting to get everybody's attention and then the booming voice of God that made everybody shake and they drew back and from that point on said, Moses, no more. We cannot handle it. You go talk to him, tell us what he says. We don't want that anymore. We see the very same signs occurring on Pentecost. This, this which began the old covenant nation of Israel is re-beginning the new covenant nation of Christians under Jesus, not Moses. And they didn't come to a desert, they came to Zion where Jesus died. They didn't come under the sprinkled blood of a lamb, they came under the sprinkled blood of Jesus. They didn't come to receive law for their condemnation, but came to receive grace for their salvation. And they did not come and hear thunderous wind on the top of the mountain, they felt it among them and heard it among them. They did not just see wind on the top of the, where God's presence was. It came upon them very selves. And note this. He did not use trumpets blown by angels this time. He used the tongues of his people who would be the instruments of declaring God's presence to, to, to send out this noise of tongues. But my favorite is that God's voice did not boom from the thunderous voice from heaven this time. This time. New covenant voice of God is a man, a jar of clay, a sinner, standing up, word of God in his hand to preach Jesus. That's the new covenant version of the thundering voice of Yahweh, is sermons that point to the cross. That's what happened this Pentecost day. And everybody was there, and they were seeing something not as significant but vastly more significant than Sinai. They were seeing the Spirit come 
down. This day, as we're going to see Peter explain, this was an unleashing day. This was an, an unleashing day where the dam that held back all of the promises of the Old Testament, the dam that held back all of the prophecies and the foreshadows and the types that had all been built up in the Old Covenant days, that dam which held them back, a three-ton TNT bomb was put at its base and it blasted itself open. And the, all of those prophecies began unleashing on the day of Pentecost. It, it was a beginning of something glorious. It was a pouring out of God's promises. But also, and I need us to hear this, it was entirely unique. Pentecost, as an event, was entirely unique. It is as unrepeatable. So I want you to hear me. If, if you're one of the Christians or you've got friends or you visit churches where the constant practice is, if we pray like they prayed, we'll see Pentecost happen like they saw. Friends, we're not able through our even unfaithfulness to rebuild the dam that God has blasted to bits. We are not able to pour out the water onto ourselves that only God does. He has done it already. Pentecost is as unrepeatable as the atonement of Jesus. Pentecost is as unrepeatable as the resurrection of Jesus. There may be things that happen that sort of remind us of it or point back to it, but in itself, it was an event. It was a one-time progressive act of God's salvation. We cannot re-atone. We cannot pray that God simply for our experiences do another resurrection of Jesus and neither can we pray that he redo some kind of Pentecost. It was the birth of the church. You don't do that again. Birthdays are remembering what happened. They're not doing any kind of reenactment, climb back in, jump back out. None of that. We're with Nicodemus. Let's not do that, Jesus. Jesus is with Nicodemus. Great idea. You don't. What happened that day was unique. It was the birth. It was a one-time event. It was, uh, we, we need to see the, the events. Maybe we have a truncated gospel that just says, Jesus died, there you go. A one-point gospel. It's, it's just not biblical. Jesus died and rose. Great, good, biblical, not quite so biblical. Not as the apostles would say. We have Jesus prophesied, incarnated, lived perfect, died the atoning death, resurrected, then ascended, now ruling from heaven. And the Pentecost is the sealing of all of that. That this God-man who went up has sent down his spirit for the ongoing ministry of the church. It was so important, unrepeatable, unique, and the birth of the church inaugurating the last days. If you hold to some kind of confused theology that says the only, every time the Bible talks about last days, it's talking about a short period at the end of the calendar, then very few Scholars would really hold that. But if you, if you're through lack of reading or simple ignorance, think that way, you, need to, you will be very confused by the way the New Testament uses the phrase, the last days. Peter says, this act is inaugurating, beginning the last days. The last days are, are, are the, the last days of the Jewish calendar, the last days of the Jewish covenant. And then from that point on, the last days are every day in between Jesus first and second coming. We're in the last days in one sense. And it has inaugurated that which we'll go into in just a moment. But look now in verse 17. As Peter explains what happens on Pentecost, he picks up, just from memory, but he picks up the scroll of the prophet 
Joel, and by the Spirit remembers every word and changes what he intends to change. What we see in verse 17, uh, 17 and 18, let me read it. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and on your sons and your daughters they shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dreams. Even on the male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. This is going to help us answer the question, how does this sermon transition us from Old Testament way of thinking to New Testament way of thinking? It's also going to help us understand the question, how does this develop the narrative of salvation? So over here, uh, Peter tells us in verse 17, that God pours out his spirit on all flesh. This is not all flesh regardless of inward faith. This is on any flesh regardless of outward status, wealth, race, royalty, priesthood, bloodline, whoever you are, if by faith and faith alone, bringing nothing else to the, to the foot of the throne of Jesus, if that's what you bring you receive the baptizing, infilling, empowering Holy Spirit. And what is, what is so significant here is that he's saying, I will pour out my Spirit. In the Old Testament, it is much more pictured as a sprinkle. I don't know if you get into the rut of thinking wrongly that the Old Testament was when all the exciting stuff happened. Now we just come here, sit here, no gold, candles, smoke, flashing lights, not this church. We go, well, where's all the excitement, all, all the good stuff, the miraculous stuff happened in the Old Testament. But, but, but the apostles' way of viewing it is that they had a sprinkle and we have a flood. That, that in the Old Testament, you would have every now and then a few certain people, maybe kings, maybe priests, a couple of prophets, they would have a sprinkling of the Holy Spirit, an endowment for ministry. Maybe something great would happen. They'd lead an army into battle. They'd have some amazing prophecy. They'd, they'd overcome an army with a jaw of a donkey. Awesome. And then the Spirit would leave. And it would come upon them later for sure, but he would not remain. It was just a sprinkling. But the new covenant, this New Testament that we stand in in Jesus Christ have every single one of us in the spiritual nation of Jesus poured out with the Holy Spirit upon us. No sprinkle, not just on a few, but poured out on all flesh. And he, he symbolizes this in, or at least Joel does, Joel uses phrases to, to, to sort of prefigure or paint a picture of what that will look like. Joel is not saying in, in the, these verses, in verse 18, he's not saying that every Christian is going to be a prophet, that every Christian is going to live a, a pattern of continual dreams and visions. What, Paul, what Joel is saying is that, that the greatest picture of spiritual ministry in the Old Covenant, in his day, he's talking to his Jewish people, the greatest sign of that, the most powerful thing that the Spirit did was lead people to see God and speak for God to know the mysteries of God and proclaim it through dreams and visions and prophecies. And Joel was saying, there's a day coming when every person in the Spirit, when every person in Christ, when every person in the covenant will have a knowledge and an access to the Spirit's truth 
that is akin to the highest and greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus would say, there's been no one like John. He's the greatest of the old covenant, but the least in the kingdom are greater than him. So that while we're not all walking around with dreams and prophecies and visions on the regular, we have the knowledge of God and the commission to speak the word of God that is on par and greater than the prophetic utterance through dreams and visions and prophecies of the old covenant. Every Christian has the spirit poured out Onto us to give us knowledge and speech for the Lord God. And then in verse 19 and to 21, again, more confusing language. He says, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire, vapor of smoke, sun will go dark, the moon will go to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What I, want to, what I want to say to you is that Peter, and only he can do this, as an apostle, as a spirit-inspired apostle, he intentionally misquotes Joel on numerous occasions. Because he's not just quoting and then explaining. He's giving running commentary so that he changes the necessary and relevant words in the text to reflect what God, the Spirit, truly meant when he wrote that. So that there's multiple times that he will change phrases in this quotation to show us that this is that. We shouldn't have a view of Pentecost and Joel's prophecy that sort of goes 30% of it, maybe even 60% of it fulfilled on Pentecost, but a whole bunch left to come at the very end or halfway through or next year or if we pray hard enough. No, Peter says, this that we're seeing is that which Joel prophesied. Joel was talking about the day of Pentecost. And because it's so significant that this prophecy centers here, and then he uses language about the blood and the moon and the sun going dark and the earth convulsing that would lead us to assume this can't be talking about the day of Pentecost because that didn't happen on the day of Pentecost. We think that, then we park our minds into repent and remember that the apostle gets to interpret the prophecies, not us. Our first reading of prophecy is not what we tally up as the literal, actual, biblical meaning of prophecy. The the apostolic understanding of prophecy is how we understand the prophecy. And Peter says, this is that. And he quotes the that that he's saying is happening. He says, uh, in here, he says, where Joel said in verse... uh, 17, where Joel said in those days, Peter interprets and and actually changes the language to be in the last days. He's adding some commentary as he goes. Where the Old Testament says the day of Yahweh in verse 18, before the day of Yahweh comes, Peter says the day of the Lord, a, a name that refers to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Where the Uh, where Joel said anyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved, Peter changes it to be anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, meaning Jesus. So he's putting the new covenant explanation into the text so that we can understand it. What this tells us is that the last days have started, as we said before, and it means that the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord, the bright and terrible, most glorious day has come, 
in judgment to unbelievers and salvation to believers. That's how Old Testament prophecy works. Judgment to those who reject the covenant. Salvation to those who accept it. It also means that in some way, these physical, these, this language of the blood and the moon and the sun and the, uh, uh, the darkness and the smoke happened. That these are not physical language of literal upheaval of the world, but are referencing, as the Old Testament prophecy does, socio-political kingdom empire convulsion as the creator and king punches his way to extend his kingdom in this world, the kingdoms, the mountains, the earth reels and rocks and screams and shatters. And so he uses decreation language of all this, what sounds so scary if literal was in fact all the more fearful when understood in its meaning. The geopolitical nations would be, sh would be shaken, reeled and rocked because the, the Messiah has come to proclaim the kingdom that brings the end to all earthly kingdoms. So what Peter has told us <clears throat> is that the last days have started and the Messiah has come. This is a Jewish connection. If you say the last days, you mean the days of the Messiah, when he comes and rules and reigns. And here's Peter saying it's the last days. Who is the Messiah? There's got to be a guy. There's got to be a throne. He's going to be seated on it. He's going to have power, rule, reign, authority. Does anybody have all authority on heaven and earth? I don't know anybody. Peter does. And Peter opens his next section of preaching Jesus as the Messiah in verse 22 with the name of Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man. A man. He had an address. He had a social security number. He had a pin code. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, attested to you by God. This was a man. Jesus was truly a man. We just heard this in the creed that Jesus was a man in our flesh, in our nature, like us, with us, and yet divine. And, and that divinity, that godhood of Jesus was attested through both his words and his works of miracles, which we read here, Peter says, God proved to you, this man Jesus, by mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, and you know it. You yourselves know how you suppressed the evidence of the blind guy walking around, how you, you, you tried to kill Lazarus who he rose from the dead, how you persecuted the people who got sent back leprous free. We, you know what Jesus did, Peter is saying. This Galilean rebel who claimed divine power and did miracles from Satan, so they thought. And this, this guy who started to mislead a whole lot of people away from God. And he was proven to be a fool because he died at the hands of the Romans. In apostolic preaching, what he is telling those people is to repent of such a mindset. Because he was the coming of the Lord that Joel prophesied. It was his death, which is the salvation of the Lord. It's his resurrection, ascension, and his spirit coming, which was spoken of as the day of the Lord. He has established his kingdom and the last days, and it is now the way that we attain salvation. That's Jesus, this man from Nazareth. Peter preaches powerfully. And what we're going to see is he's going to outline in successive verses the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the heavenly reign of Jesus. 
This is how theologians break up the, the life of Jesus. His, his living, his dying, his resurrecting, his ascending, and his reigning. So we're going to do that and see how, how Peter churns these out. Look at verse 22. We've just seen that he spoke of the ministry, the life of Jesus, the lived, powerful miracles and teachings of Jesus. But then, verse 23, he speaks of his death. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was no mistake. This was not a plan B. This was not because you, with your free will, overpowered God's plan, but by the plan that was written in the history books before the first day of creation, as God's meticulous, intricate plan had foretold, he was delivered up on the Roman cross. And it means, this sovereignty of God means no innocence at that, for, the, for those whose, whose hands actually pinned him there. It's not an excuse that, well, this all worked out to God's ordained plan. Surely he can see that I was just helping him out when I killed his son. Come on, had to happen. It was prophesied. So they are still counted as murderers. What they chose to do freely, even though it was a part of God's foreordained definite plan, left them guilty. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We just can't in our day, and so we won't spend lots of time here. We'll come to that in future sermons. But, but to say the Messiah is crucified is a completely oxymoronic statement. The blessed one has gone to the most Hateful, scornful, shameful death is just, they can't calculate that in the Jewish mind. Yet Peter proclaims it as fact. You killed him. You crucified him. There's his life. There's his death. Then we see his resurrection in verse 24. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What we see is that his resurrection was not a rumor. It wasn't a magic trick. It was the release of death from the release from death of him who owed no debt to death. You are only held in death as long as it is valid that you, you are so. As long as you owe debt a death of sin, a debt of sin, you remain under its grasp. If you have a clean slate, if you have a blank check, death does not own you. So Jesus blasted its gates to pieces and walked out of the tomb, being raised up by God because it was impossible for death to hold him. The payment of sin is death. He paid it fully and was therefore let free. And then he, he quotes Psalm 16. We won't read the whole of the uh, uh, quotation again, but Psalm 16 there is what he then goes to quote that David had written down about his confidence that the chosen, holy one of God would not be rejected by God. If he goes through his affliction to death, he won't stay there. He says, the holy one will not see corruption. He won't be abandoned to the grave. If he dies, he won't be in the grave long enough for his body to rot. And Peter shows the obvious conclusion in verse 29. He says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried just like Jesus. But unlike Jesus, David is still in that tomb continuing to rot if there is even a cell left of his human body. But he was a prophet, verse 37. David had the spirit that has just come down. 
David had the Spirit which told him, foretold him, showed him that, that God was going to set one of his sons on the throne for an eternal kingdom. We know that. That's the Davidic covenant. A son of David would rule forever on his throne. And so David looked forward and spoke of him. His son, who he called his Lord. This man who was going to be origins of eternity, as Isaiah would prophesy. This man, David spoke of and said, he was going to rise. The Jews misunderstood it as much as they did, but David, by the Spirit, had prophesied that, and Peter explains it here. Jesus is the descendant of David who would sit on his throne and rule, and the resurrection was a proof of that. Look at verse 30. God had sworn with an oath to him, David, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, and he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, that he, his, his flesh did not see corruption. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So we have from Peter the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and it doesn't stop there. We're just picking up pace. Peter then goes from, from his resurrection, he didn't remain here. He didn't stay here. He didn't even fight for David's physical throne in Jerusalem. What a useless waste of power and authority that would be. Judea? You kidding me? Little land strip next to the Mediterranean? The Father has promised me the nation. The Milky Way belongs to me. The nebulae and the, and the stars and the galaxies, you humans haven't even found yet. Their decoration in my throne room. I'm going to go up and sit from where I can rule and reign over it all. When, when Elon Musk finally gets his little colony on Mars, guess who will be Lord there? Jesus. If, if human race would live long enough by God's grace to get to the far extent of, a, of another galaxy, guess who will still be the Lord over morality, righteousness, science, truth, history? It'll be Jesus. Because he didn't arise up to Zion and sit down on a throne. He arose up to God's right hand. Look at verse 33. The ascension of Jesus. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Did you see Daniel 7 there? Did you see it? Did you see the Great Commission there? Did you see the ascension just there when Jesus said, I have all authority on heaven and earth that the Son of Man receives from God in Daniel 7? Did you see how in the ascension he rose up on the cloud and in Daniel 7 tells us that the Son of Man comes riding on the cloud up to God and receives the kingdom that does not pass away? Do you, do you see it all happening here? This isn't just that Jesus undid death and went back. He took a throne that had been waiting for him, that could only be ruled by him as the son of David, the priest who would die for us, the prophet who would speak the truth of God to us. This Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. And see now, the Father received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Speaking of that dynamic of, of the Son inheriting the kingdom from the Father, of the Son raising up and sitting on the throne of David, he quotes the most quoted verse 
from the Old Testament in the New Testament. And that's Psalm 110, verse 1. When David, he didn't rise, verse 34 says, and he didn't ascend. He didn't go up into heaven like Jesus did bodily. But he himself does say, Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is glorious. This is Old Testament capstone. That the priest that is promised, he's called a priest in Psalm 110, who makes the atonement will then rule forever until every enemy is dead at his feet or serving him on the throne of David. This is Psalm 110. Glorious Psalm. Love it. Read it every day until you know it off by heart. I'm still working on it. Psalm 110. And Peter is saying, this Jesus is that psalm's fulfillment. He's the king now reigning. He's the one who has all authority and honor. Let all the house of Israel therefore know, verse 36. Look at what Peter says. Know for certain. We're going to go from all this amazing talk of the Messiah who receives a kingdom. This Messiah who saves a people that we've been waiting for. They have all these elated, elevated thoughts He says, God has made both Lord and Christ, this Jesus. They're titles. Lord as King, Christ as Messiah, this Jesus, that's him. Whom you crucified. And these Jews, standing at the precipice of history, that that all of the prophecies have culminated onto their day, realized he came and they butchered him. They spat at him. They beat him. They mocked his naked body hanging from a pagan Roman cross. And at that very moment, the next verse makes a whole lot of sense. They were stabbed to the heart, is what the Greek says. They were pierced like a dagger had just gone through their bone into their Their their, their heart, that is what good spirit-empowered preaching does. It brings people to realize we're guilty. Jesus died for a reason. It was my sin that deserved that death. I'm guilty, I'm I'm filthy, I'm unclean. And they had every, these were the most guilty generation that has ever lived on the face of the earth, according to Paul. And here they stand. What do you think would happen? I mean, I mean, just take yourself back to, to the empire of Rome. If it was found that you had beaten in the streets, stomped on the jaw, and crucified a man, who turns out to be the son of the general who just took the empire's seat? Now he's emperor. You killed his son. And the word got back to him. What do you expect? But what do you expect Peter to say is they say, what do we do? I'll tell you what I think the answer should be. Run as fast and as far as you can. Don't come near to the king. Leave the reign of his authority. Leave where, his, where the coins still carry his image. Keep on running. It is not safe. He will pour out on you his wrath. Run, flee, or he will pour out his wrath. But that is not what Peter says. He doesn't say turn around and leave. He says turn from your sin and come. Do not flee but repent. 
Come to the Lord Jesus who is able to save. Approach the Father through his exalted Son. Look at verse 38. Repent and be baptized. Not leave. Not, Not go away so that he can't find you, but come and receive his covenant name upon you. Be baptized into his name. Identify with him. No human would give the advice to go and run to the emperor's throne room. You just killed his son. That was you. Run. Go. In fact, sit on his throne. Yoink the cloak over your shoulders. Call yourself a son in his son's place. But that is Peter's call. That is Peter's sermon. That is Peter's demand for repentance. And he does not pour out wrath. Instead, we're told, that being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, you will receive forgiveness of your sins and he will pour out onto you the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is not a threat to you and anyone who bears your name. Never step foot in this kingdom. Rather, it's a promise of salvation to you and every one of your children. Anyone who comes to God through this crucified, dead buried, risen, ascended, ruling and reigning Jesus. Anyone that comes has this promise of complete forgiveness because your sins were counted as his sins and his death was counted as your debt-dealing death. There is nothing for you to pay because he paid it all. There is nowhere for you to run because he rules it all. Wherever you have been, whatever you have done, Peter commands, and I command as his spiritual descendant, come to Jesus. Confess your sin to him. No, no, not down here. Come to him. He is here in your heart. He is right here ready to hear the confession of your sins and receive the faith that you place in him. Trust him and not yourself. It is a completed work for you. He did not sit on the throne with a few things on his to-do list to get us saved. He paid it all. He sat down to rest while the Father brings his enemies to him in worship. So that as we think today, as we start thinking about what the practical applications of this is for us, we've seen how this sort of brings about the narrative of salvation in the Bible. We've seen how this sort of changes our old covenant to new covenant way of thinking. We've seen how Peter preaches Jesus. And what about today is that some practical applications as we close up. First of all, let me repeat, Pentecost must never be sought. It is not a paradigm or or, or stencil for New Testament ministry. It's the beginning and foundation for New Testament ministry. Do not read it, try and seek a repetition of it. It's a reality we live in and draw benefits from, not repeat. Number one. Secondly, let's define Holy Spirit ministry the way that the Holy Spirit wants us to through the book of Acts. We must define Holy Spirit ministry as while it may have other things involved, if there is not the making known, proclaiming, and preaching of the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and heavenly reign of Jesus Christ, it's not Holy Spirit ministry. Let me even be as bold to say this. If that message is on a close second place, that is a demonically uh, 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 affected ministry. There may be Christians in it. It may have started well. If that gospel takes point number two, it's done. It's on its way into the ground. 
The last bits of dirt just need to be thrown on top of it to cover it. Peter made no reference of excitement or pointing back to the tongues or the fire or the wind. He only made preaching of Jesus his aim. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Elevate Jesus. Whatever else follows, let him do so as he sovereignly plans. But we seek to preach and proclaim the gospel. And thirdly, connected to that, let us think highly of gospel preaching. Let us think highly of being at a church, planting more churches, supporting ministries, encouraging those, becoming those who will preach the gospel of Jesus. Sometimes this will be ordained ministers. Often this will be you in your lunchroom, you on the street with a tract or a Bible in hand, you proclaiming on the street corner for all those who pass by, you posting and speaking and and giving apologetics for the Christian faith on social media, whatever it be, the speaking of Jesus must be primary to each of our ministries. Our voices, though timid you are, though scared we can get, you know, shaken with our words, that is the booming voice of God in this Pentecostal apostolic church age. This means that that as we seek to, to, to grow as a church, develop as a church, plant more churches into the future, what has to be primary is the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not simply a, a, a back part. It's not a tangent. Maybe there's, there's pastors in the room or future pastors in the room who need to hear this. The church follows the pulpit. It can't be a chat. It can't be a, a weak little, little conversation from a guy up, up front or a gal up front. You know, this is, this is just we're all, we're all humans here. Let us have that boldness that Peter had when he said, listen, I have something to say from God. If a man can't say that, He needs to take a seat. Preaching is the message of God for salvation. And so we should think highly of it and seek to constantly, regularly, bring our souls under its vocal hearing so that we can grow, question it, learn from it, question others, challenge others, and grow as Jesus' saints. Our last point of application is where we'll close out, which is, friends, if you have not already, You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is at this moment the highest authority in all of the world. He is the king on the throne. And and in all of that power, he does not uh, accumulate it and, 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 and grow it up so that he can pour down wrath. He is in his authority declared that anyone who comes to him will be saved. Bring your sin for forgiveness. Bring your life for transformation. Open your heart to God and he will pour in the Holy Spirit who is the promise of the ages. And if we do not, the day to come at the end of the world is a day of wrath. We are told to come and kiss the son lest he be angry. That day awaits at our death or at the end of the world, whichever comes first. But friends, be found in the mercy of Jesus Christ. He loves you and gave himself for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of Peter. We thank you for the, the, the testimony of Luke and the Acts. And Lord, most of all, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have sent, that you have poured out, that you have given as a culmination of your promises, as a gift to the church who you purchased by your blood. 
I pray, Lord God, that we would be those on mission that, that see ourselves in the very same vein as the early church, not seeking to set up some kind of political power, not seeking to set up some kind of uh, locked away commune for our own peace and security, but bold, waving his flag, carrying swords with his name engraved on it. May we preach Jesus, the grace and mercy and love of Jesus Christ, bloodshed for anybody. May that be constantly on our lips, nor may it be in our hearts. For those who do not currently believe, Lord, please give to them the faith to believe, for anyone can be forgiven today. And for those of us who do know you, but but, but a week, and we often waver, Lord, I pray that you would give to them boldness by your Holy Spirit. That you would give to them words to speak by your Holy Spirit. And that you would give them assurance of Jesus Christ's salvation by your Holy Spirit. Please make us joyful singers and those who live holy unto the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.